Welcome to Barry Pirro's Haunted Happenings Podcast, where I share in-depth stories of the paranormal, the supernatural, and the unexplained. So turn off your lights, sit back, and prepare to be scared. On November 13, 1974, Ronald DeFeo Jr. shot and killed all six members of his family at their home in Amityville, New York. After pleading insanity, he was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to six sentences of 25 years to life. In December 1975, George and Kathy Lutz and their three young children moved into the house. After just 28 days, the Lutzes fled the home, claiming that they were terrorized by horrific paranormal phenomena. The couple intended to return to the house, but after a group of paranormal investigators were unable to tell them how to fix the problem, they donated their possessions to charity and never returned. Getting to the bottom of paranormal activity is tricky business. These days, there are an overabundance of paranormal groups that you can find online. But in the late 1970s, if you wanted answers to your haunting problem, you would probably contact the most famous ghost hunters at the time, Ed and Lorraine Warren. On the night of March 6, 1976, the Warrens investigated the house in Amityville. Accompanying them were a crew from Channel 5 New York and a reporter from WNEWFM. Now, it's a little fuzzy how much the Warrens knew about the house or its history before going there. During a 2005 interview, Lorraine said, We were contacted by the Lutzes and the media in New York City. The media contacted us first. We knew nothing about the murders. We knew nothing about a family moving in and fleeing. But in the same interview, she said that the TV news reporter Marvin Scott told her, I thought that hopefully you could shed some light on a home where there had been mass murder, and then 13 months later, a young family fled with just the clothes on their back. Our viewers would like to know. I'm a professional paranormal investigator, and I doubt that the Warrens would have agreed to conduct an investigation without knowing anything about it, simply because not every case is worth investigating. But it's possible that they didn't know any specific details. They may have only known that they were investigating a home where there had been a mass murder and where a family had fled because of paranormal activity. The Warrens weren't alone in the house that night. There were quite a few people with us, Lorraine explained. There was a parapsychologist and his wife from England. There was a woman by the name of Mary Pascarella who headed a psychic research group out of New Haven. There were people from Duke with us, our own researchers and our own cameramen. Also on hand that night was TV news anchor Marvin Scott and his film crew. As Lorraine walked through the house, the murders and the Lutz's plight were clearly on her mind. During an interview, she said, My first emotion when I walked in was of total sadness. It was overwhelmingly sad to walk into a home where a whole family had been murdered and where another young family had fled with nothing. 
When Lorraine got to the second floor, she had a profoundly frightening experience. I started to go up the stairs, and I reached a point where it felt as if there was a force of water coming against my chest, almost as if you had to go against a tremendous force of water, like a waterfall or something of that nature. When Lorraine was feeling this unexplainable force, Ed was elsewhere in the house trying to discover what was responsible for the haunting. Lorraine said, I thought Ed was behind me, but he wasn't. He had taken the opportunity as a religious demonologist to go down into the basement to command what was there to reveal itself in the name of Jesus Christ. He said that it was as if a hot, wet blanket was thrown right over the top of him, forcing him to the floor where he had to use religious resistance in order to have this lifted from him. We both came under attack at the exact same time. When Lorraine was in the sewing room on the second floor, a TV reporter asked what she was feeling. She answered, I hope that this is as close to hell as I'll ever get. In a later interview, Lorraine described the experience this way. It was overwhelming fear, she said, like the walls were literally closing right in on me. The evil was so thick you could cut it. Lorraine insisted that she had no prior knowledge about the murders that had been committed in the room or what the priest had experienced as he was blessing it over a year earlier. That night, other members of the various paranormal teams were having their own problems. Mary Pascarella became physically ill and had to leave. One of the cameramen started having severe heart palpitations and the chair on which one of the interns from the Duke group was sitting on apparently began rocking back and forth to the point where he had to be taken out of the room. But not everyone in the house was having problems that night. In his book, As I Saw It, A Reporter's Intrepid Journey, Marvin Scott wrote about his experience while participating in the Warren seance that night. He said, Everyone at the table was riveted by the declarations of the psychics. And yet, as intense and entertaining as they were, I admit I was skeptical and experienced little that changed that skepticism. Later that same night, Mr. Scott participated in a second seance with Lorraine in the sewing room. He wrote, At 3.15 a.m., the exact time DeFeo had begun executing his family, we sat on the floor in front of candles and a crucifix, and another seance was conducted. This seance was as uneventful for me as the first. Again, I felt nothing unusual. If there was a demonic force in the Amityville house that night, it certainly didn't manifest itself to me. To be frank, I didn't experience anything I considered unusual throughout my whole experience there. One intriguing but controversial piece of evidence from that night is an eerie photo that seems to show a boy with glowing white eyes peering around the corner of a doorway. George was asked about the origins of the photo. He explained, An infrared camera was set up in the hallway on the second floor outside of the master bedroom. Every so often a flash would go off and it would just take a picture of this area. In one of the pictures is a little boy looking out of the room as near as we can tell. When we asked Missy if she knew who this was, she said, Yes, that's Jody. He would come and play with me. While the photo does resemble the youngest murder victim, nine-year-old John Matthew DeFeo, skeptics believe that it actually shows Paul Bartz, an investigator who was there that night. 
At the time, Bartz was wearing a plaid shirt similar to the one the boy was seen wearing in the picture. Those who question the photo think that Bart was probably crouching down to adjust wires or some other equipment in the doorway when the camera happened to go off, which is why he appears so short. His eyes are glowing because the camera was using infrared film. Everyone's eyes appear to be glowing when photographed with this type of film. The picture of the little boy with glowing eyes is very creepy, but to me, the most fascinating photo taken that night is one that captured the face of St. Padre Pio. A striking image of his profile can be seen peering out from the antler of a moose head that's hanging on the wall. For decades before the Amityville investigation, Lorraine spoke of her reliance on Padre Pio to protect her during her investigations. To have an image of the saint appear in a photo with Lorraine is nothing short of amazing. Of all the photos taken that night, this is the one that intrigues me the most, partially because I once had a vision of Padre Pio that changed my life. But that's a story for another podcast. After the Amityville investigation, the Warrens claimed that an evil entity followed them back to their house in Monroe, Connecticut. When the couple got home, Ed went down to his office to review the evidence of the case, and Lorraine retired to bed. I got in bed, she said, and I was waiting for Ed to come back. I started to read, but I couldn't concentrate on the first paragraph. That in itself is an indication that something is trying to reach you. All of a sudden, I heard a deafening sound. It sounded as if you had large sheets of sheet metal and you were shaking them. I looked at the dogs and they weren't moving. They were like statues. Then I heard a cyclone of wind or energy coming from the lowest level of the house. I could hear it coming, and I could feel it coming all the way up into the dining room, the living room, and up into the bedroom level. Then, right in the doorway leading into our bedroom, I saw this massive black mass. It was horrible, frightening. I made a huge sign of the cross in the air, and I said, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to leave and go back to where you came from. It recoiled, almost like a snake, then went out. Seconds later, Ed came in through the master bedroom's back door. He laid on the top of the covers, put his hand on top of mine, and said, Honey, you have no idea what just happened to me. I said the same thing to him. We came under identical attacks on two different levels of this house at the same time. When asked what Lorraine actually thought took place in the Amityville house that night, she didn't hesitate. Evil, she said. Evil. It's the personification of evil. How evil can personify itself. How it can be attracted in certain situations. After the release of the Amityville Horror book, George and Kathy Lutz agreed to submit to lie detector tests independent of one another, and they passed with flying colors. The couple answered five questions about the case. Now, this might seem like a small number, but typically only three relevant questions are asked during a lie detector test. One of the questions asked was about Kathy levitating, and another was about how she appeared to turn into an old woman. 
After the Warrens investigation, another world-renowned paranormal investigator who took on the case was Hans Holzer, one of the most prolific and influential paranormal investigators of the 20th century. He wrote over 120 books on the supernatural, including three about Amityville. But Holzer's take on the case was far different from the Warrens. He was certain that Ronald DeFeo Jr.'s murderous rampage and the activity that terrorized the Lutzes was caused by the spirit of a Native American Indian chief. In the fall of 1976, Holzer was approached by DeFeo's attorneys who were pursuing an appeal. They hoped that any new evidence provided by Holzer could be used in the appeal. An agreement was made for him to visit the now-empty house accompanied by trance medium Ethel Johnson Meyer, a reporter from Channel 5 News, and two of DeFeo's attorneys. The visit took place on January 13, 1977. In his book, The Amityville Curse, Fact and Fiction, Holzer includes a transcript of Miss Meyer's trance session. As soon as she got herself settled in a bedroom on the third floor, she began receiving impressions about the house being built over an Indian burial ground and over the tomb of a very sacred chief. Miss Meyer went on to say that whoever lives here is going to be a victim of all the anger, its blind fierceness. While still in trance, Miss Meyer told the tale of a young teenage boy who found the Indian chief's skull while digging on the property in the early 1900s. Instead of treating it with respect, the boy used it as a toy. She said that this angered the Indian chief, and to this day he takes vengeance on anyone who lives in the house by possessing males who are psychically gifted. Those possessed are forced to do whatever the Indian wants him to do. Miss Meyer claimed to have had no prior knowledge of the DeFeo murders. During her trance, she stated that a young man killed four people in the house with a pistol while under the influence of a ghost. Holzer asked if the young man did this by himself, and she said that he did. Although six people were killed in the house, it is interesting that Miss Myers said that the person who was possessed shot four. Ronnie DeFeo said that he only intended to kill his parents, but for some reason he couldn't stop himself and killed his four siblings as well. It's possible that Miss Meyer was only picking up on the four brothers and sisters that he killed. When asked if any of the spirits of those who were murdered still haunt the house, Miss Myers said, they are wandering around. They come here and they scream. I've been hearing screaming all the time so that they can't talk. Holzer interviewed Ronald DeFeo Jr. in prison, but unfortunately he continually asked Ronnie leading questions. It was obvious that he was trying to get Ronnie to say that his personality changed when he and his family moved into the Amityville house in 1965 and that he was possessed when he committed the murders. Throughout the interview, Ronnie gave vague answers, then eventually he seemed to give in and tell Holzer what he wanted to hear. In the end, we're left with an interview that didn't have much in the way of substance, and which would never have been admissible in court. Holzer claimed that a librarian from Amityville confirmed that the DeFeo house was built on an ancient Indian burial ground, but the Amityville Historical Society disputed this. 
It's total nonsense, they said. There was no cemetery or sacred ground there. It's a shame to prolong and keep this myth going. It's only for monetary gain. Anybody who believes it is a victim. It's a shameful intrusion upon reason and totally devoid of any foundation in fact. Once the Amityville Historical Society came out with their statement, everyone pretty much discounted Holzer's claim that the house was built on an Indian burial ground. But not so fast. In 2021, a newspaper article from 1895 was discovered that changed everything. It reads, Workmen engaged in digging a cellar for a new house to be erected on the property of E.W. Bordet on Ocean Avenue in this village have discovered several skeletons, some of them in a good state of preservation. They are believed to be the remains of Indians of the Iroquois tribe who long ago had a burying ground in this vicinity. The house that the DeFeo family lived and died in, and that the Lutzes purchased and abandoned, was on this very plot of land once owned by E.W. Bordet. So Ethel Myers was correct. The house was indeed built on the site of an ancient Indian burial ground. Throughout the years, Holzer poo-pooed other investigators' findings. What we have here is not a house of horror, he said. We do not have demons because there are no such things as demons or the devil. That's a fantasy that religious fanatics like to dream up. As far as Mr. Lutz is concerned, whatever he experienced may have been just ordinary poltergeist phenomenon, noises and so on. To sum it up, according to Holzer, it was the vengeful spirit of the Indian chief who took over Ronnie DeFeo's body. Therefore, it was really the Indian chief who killed the DeFeo family. That's all there is to this house, Holzer said. No slime, no flies. That's all just a Hollywood invention, and it's just not true. So what does it all mean? Was some demonic force at work that caused Ronald DeFeo Jr. to murder his family? Did the Lutzes encounter this same force when they moved into the house? Was the spirit of an angry Indian chief to blame? Or was the Amityville horror just a hoax? To this day, DeFeo's attorney, William Weber, insists that the Amityville horror story was totally made up by the Lutzes. It's a fraudulent story, he told reporter Marvin Scott. The Lutzes took advantage of an unfortunate incident in the house and built a supernatural story around it. Weber said that he had met with George and Kathy Lutz to discuss writing a book and that the three of them fabricated the whole thing over a few bottles of wine. It's worth noting, however, that when Weber made these statements, he was in an ongoing lawsuit with the Lutzes, so it's hard to take him on his word. The Lutzes never denied meeting with Weber, and they also admitted that they eventually decided to allow Jay Hansen to write the book instead because he offered them a better cut of the royalties. But they insisted, until their dying day, that their story was true, even if many aspects of Anson's book were exaggerated. In almost every interview they gave, they said that they allowed the book to be written because they felt it was important that their story was told so that others wouldn't have to go through what they went through. Another person who insists that the Amityville story was true is Daniel Lutz. 
He was only nine years old when he and his family moved into the Amityville house, and the experiences he had there have haunted him to this very day. Daniel said that his stepfather, George Lutz, was a vain, controlling man who was physically and verbally abusive. He also said that he suspected that his stepfather dabbled in Satanism, and he thought that this is the reason so many strange things happened to the family. Daniel's brother, Christopher Lutz, also claimed that George was involved in the occult. In an interview for the documentary Real Fear, The Truth Behind the Movies, Chris said, When I read Jay Anson's book, it portrayed my stepfather as if he was a victim of this house and a hero to the family. Yet the real difference was that they had omitted that George was involved in the occult, calling up the spirits. The fact that it was in that house was what created the storm. In the documentary My Amityville Horror, Daniel Lutz said that he saw furniture move by itself, that he was thrown up a staircase, and that his bed was bouncing off of the ceiling the night before they fled the house. He confirmed the story that the toilets turned black, and that there was often a terrible stench in the house. He also said that the house was infested by thousands of flies, but his story differs considerably from George and Kathy's statements about the flies. He said that one day he went up to one of the bedrooms and found around 500 flies buzzing around. After killing about a hundred of them with a rolled up newspaper, he ran downstairs and told his mother about it. When she came up to the room, the flies were gone and the newspaper that he left on the floor was also gone. Daniel was dumbfounded. His mother looked around the room. You did what, she said? I don't see anything. Where are the flies? Where is the newspaper? In listening to the story, you have to wonder if there really was some sort of demonic force at work which put hallucinations into the boy's mind. If that's the case, then perhaps all of the experiences the Lutzes had were demonic illusions. Unspeakable, horrific hallucinations are common in the infestation stage of possession, which would explain why various family members described having very different experiences. In one interview, George said, We each saw things so drastically different than the person right next to us. It was very hard for us to communicate, even as a family. In the last interview before her death, Kathy said, When I look back, I describe it like a three-ring circus, each being in their own room or in their own area of the house, experiencing for themselves something different than what the other person was. If an evil entity was at work when the DeFeo family were being murdered in their beds, it would explain why none of them woke up when the gunfire started. They were either made deaf to the sounds, or they were literally frozen in their beds, unable to escape their ultimate fate. Where did the demon go after the murders? I believe that it stayed in the house and waited for more victims. What do I think happened in the Amityville house? I believe that the Lutzes did experience paranormal activity that was, at least in part, demonic. The type of phenomenon that the Lutzes described fits perfectly into the demonic infestation stage of possession. Typical haunted house incidents, such as the sound of footsteps and of doors slamming, quickly ramp up to include the presence of foul odors, disturbed sleep patterns, 
and witnessing bizarre and impossible things, such as the sudden appearance of flies and other creatures that are symbols of death and decay. Demons love to mock the Bible, and Missy's pig friend Jody is a perfect example. In the New Testament, in Matthew 8, verse 28 through 34, Jesus drives demons out of a possessed man. The demons beg Jesus not to send them away, but instead to send them into the pigs on a nearby hillside, which he does. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rush down the steep bank into the sea and are drowned. By showing itself as a pig to Missy, I believe that the demon was making a subtle reference to this passage in the Bible and mocking it because it had no intention of doing away with itself the way the pigs did in the Bible story. It's also very telling that Daniel Lutz's story of seeing flies in the house differed completely from his parents' experience. The flies that all of them saw were an illusion, very similar to the type of hallucinations demons cause people to see during demonic infestation. Another story was told by George and Kathy that hints at demonic-induced hallucinations. The couple claimed to have seen hooved footprints in the snow outside the house one morning. The problem with their story is that there was no snow on Long Island during the time the Lutzes stayed at the house. But if they were under the influence of a demon, it's very possible that they saw hoofprints in the snow that morning, the same way that they heard a storm raging outside their house the night before they fled the house. A storm that didn't exist for anyone else in the neighborhood. The goal of a demon is to wear away the will of a person so it can possess them. I believe that that's exactly what happened to the Lutzes. A demon caused them to witness impossible things that caused them to doubt their sanity. In the end, they were lucky to get out alive. But there's one more thing to consider, something that's almost universally ignored in the Amityville case, the DeFeo family's furniture. Objects can be haunted in the same way that a house can be haunted. I believe that the furniture that was left behind was haunted. It had absorbed so much negative energy from being in the house during the years of family turmoil and during the night of the murders that it caused additional haunted activity in the home while the Lutzes were living there. When they moved out, the entire contents of the house was given away to charity. This included the furniture. If the furniture was indeed haunted, which I believe it was, then once it was gone, there too went any future hauntings. The Amityville Horror book was based on tapes the Lutzes submitted to Jay Anson, and they had no idea what it would eventually look like until it was published. After the book came out, I believe that George and Kathy found themselves in a position where they had to publicly confirm some of the exaggerations put in by the author. To say publicly that some of the facts were inaccurate or exaggerated would put their entire experience into question. Since they knew they were telling the truth, they probably figured that not making a big deal about some of the inaccuracies in the book was the price they'd have to pay to get their story out. George and Kathy didn't set out to have a book written about their experiences purely for the money, but they never denied profiting from it. In one interview, George said that the combined royalties from the book and the movie were about $300,000. 
I think that they didn't want to risk losing any future stakes in the telling of their story, so they downplayed some of the things written in the book and focused on the basic facts as they had told them to Jay Anson. Kathy and George didn't go on to live a life of luxury. The money faded quickly, and the couple struggled financially for the rest of their lives. After fleeing the home and abandoning their possessions, the Lutzes moved to San Diego. They sold Amway products for a while to try to make a living. Eventually, they moved to Arizona. The couple divorced in the late 1980s. Kathy, who was active in a Christian ministry, died in 2004 of a respiratory disease, and George died of heart disease in 2006. In the 45 years since the Lutzes moved out of the Amityville house, none of the five families who have lived there have reported experiencing anything unusual. In the end, we may never know the truth about the Amityville horror. The stories the Lutzes told were personal. They were the only ones who experienced them, so no one else can confirm or dispute them. And now that the main players in the drama have all passed away, it's impossible to know for sure what was fact and what was fiction. I've always been impressed that in every single interview the Lutzes ever gave, even up until the time of their deaths, the couple seemed absolutely genuine. They didn't embellish or change their story very much over the years, and they never sought out more book or movie deals to capitalize on their experiences. Perhaps the best place to leave the Amityville horror mystery is with a quote from George Lutz. In a 2002 History Channel documentary, he said, I believe this has stayed alive for 25 years because it's a true story. It doesn't mean that everything that has ever been said about it is true, but it's certainly not a hoax. It's real easy to call something a hoax. I wish it was. It's not.